Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's tribute to Robert Conquest, a senior research fellow and scholar curator at Hoover for 28 years who passed away in 2015. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Robert Conquest was a renowned historian of Soviet politics and foreign policy. His landmark work, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the 30s, remains one of the most influential studies of Soviet history more than 35 years after its publication, and has been translated into more than 20 languages. More than a celebrated historian, Conquest was also a talented man of letters, publishing eight volumes of poetry and serving as a literary editor of the London Spectator. In this panel, entitled Lessons for U.S.-Russia Relations and for Ukraine Today, we'll hear from Michael McFall, a Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the U.S. Ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. McFall is introduced by our moderator, Mary Kissel, a member of the Wall Street Journal Editorial Board in New York and host of Opinion Journal on WSJ Live. The panel was recorded on January 25th, 2016. Well, I think you all join me in, uh, in agreeing that it's really been an honor and a privilege uh, to have a moment, an afternoon, to celebrate such a remarkable and energetic, productive, and ultimately a courageous life in the life of Robert Conquest. I, uh, I wasn't a student of Robert's. I was a student of uh, Richard Pipes's at uh, Harvard, very different men, but uh, uh, very similar in the way that they understood the Soviet Union and the inherent evilness of the Soviet Empire, and that both also understood uh, the importance uh, of speaking about that evilness, explaining it, uh, and ultimately defeating it, which they did, which is why in some respects this is a very unfortunate final panel, because it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> that we have to talk about U.S.-Russia relations, where they are today, that we have a man uh, like Putin today playing uh, with what is, should be a, a very weak hand. He has a weak hand demographically. He certainly has a weak hand economically. And yet we have seen him extend his power, not just through the annexation of Crimea and the ongoing war in Eastern Europe, uh, but the way that he has played peacemaker in Syria with our acquiescence, uh, the way that he looms over the Baltics, and the way that he ultimately looms over NATO. Uh, thankfully, we have someone with us today who has met Vladimir Putin many times. Uh, Michael McFall is the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Professor of Political Science, and a Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies here at Stanford. And from January 2012 to February 2014, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation. Uh, I don't know if we should uh, congratulate or feel sorry for you having to deal uh, with Putin so closely at that particular period of time. He did not invade Ukraine when I was ambassador. <laughs> he waited two days until I left. Uh, prior to that, he was uh, three years as a special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council. He has authored and edited many books, too numerous to elaborate on here. He has written for, among others, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which I hear is an excellent publication that everyone should subscribe to. 
Uh, born and raised in Montana, received his BA uh, in International Relations and Slavic Languages and his MA in Soviet and European Studies here from Stanford in 1986. Also a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, we're going to try to make this a lively exchange since it is the end of the day and an unfortunate panel as I opened with. So Ambassador, uh, why don't we kick it off? Uh, how do you understand Putin, his ambitions, his, his goals? So before we get to Putin, which is depressing, I want to talk a little bit about Bob, if I may. Please. Um, just I want to say three things. It's really uh, an incredible honor to be at this event. Uh, it's not an honor to be sandwiched between George Schultz and Condi Rice, by the way. Um, I would prefer a different slot in the speaker series next time. Um, but I just want to say th three things about Bob. Um, I had the fortune of knowing him for many years. Uh, my office was two doors down from his uh, over in Lou Henry Hoover for about two decades, actually. Um, and John Dunlop, I think I saw John here, and John is there. So John and Bob had the two corner offices, being the, the senior people that they are. I had the middle small office between them. Um, and I wanted to say three things about my interactions with Bob, but also, John, this actually pertains to you too. Uh, one is, uh, my first time on the job market, it's just on my mind because Professor Kotkin was speaking about tenure in academia. Uh, I went 0 for 23, 0 for 23, 23 applications. I got no interviews. The one place that wanted to interview me was UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and when they learned I was living in Moscow at the time, they didn't want to pay the airfare. Uh, that year, I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship to the Hoover Institution with the cockamamie crazy idea to use literatures of theories of revolution to explain what was happening in the Soviet Union. And at the time, that was crazy, because at the time, this was reform, and this was Gorbachev. No disrespect to Mikhail Sergeyevich, who I've, I've come to know well, but I had a different theory. I had a theory that this was more like what happened in the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution. I actually wrote that up. Uh, published it in an obscure newspaper, by the way, uh, the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, they did give me 2,500 words, though, which you would never give me. Never. Uh, um, and nobody, everybody thought this was totally crazy except for one place, the Hoover Institution. Um, and I just say that because sometimes uh, you have to take chances on people with unorthodox ideas. You have to take chances and have here at the Hoover Institution, I think it's really important, just thinking about Bob's work, uh, on people that may not fit the 10-year letter writing. I mean, I don't know, Professor Kotkin, could Bob Conquest have gotten tenure at Stanford University in our history department? You don't have to answer that, <laughs> but the fact that he's not saying yes is part of what I wanted to say was what was so magical about the chance Hoover took on me and, and then secondly, placing me in that, what I called the, the, the Russian ghetto over there, where every day as I came in, uh, I didn't come in as militantly and I was not as disciplined as Bob, who told me you had to write a thousand words every day. Uh, I was younger then and so I wouldn't write for weeks and then I would write 10,000 in a weekend. Uh, his strategy, I, I now try to do every day myself. But the second thing, in addition to, to let unorthodox thinking happen, because it may become conventional wisdom, as we learned from Professor Kotkin earlier this morning, was to pay attention to these, these silly things, these, these really difficult things called facts. 
Uh, and, and John too. my goodness, these guys took facts seriously. Uh, I'm in political science. Is there any political scientists here? Oh, goodness, then I can't say what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> off the record, uh, political... I interrupt because of your comment about political science. Margaret Thatcher <laughs> came here to give a talk, and before she talked, I was sitting around, and I think John Raisin, you were there, and uh, Margaret and Milton and I, and Milton said something about political science. And Margaret said, Milton! There is no such thing as political science. There is politics, but there's no science. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from comments on that. that. Uh, Princeton <laughs> has a department of politics. It's not political science. I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, I, I, I will note that uh, uh, Mr. Karimov in Uzbekistan just today, George, banned the study of political science in Uzbekistan. Um, but the point I wanted to make is political science, we can be a little bit sloppy with facts and we like big data sets. Um, and you know, uh, I, I greatly appreciate that I sat for many years next to two historians that took facts very seriously. It had a profound impact on my work. In fact, so much so that I'm not sure political scientists consider me a political scientist anymore. They uh, 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 derogatorily sometimes refer to me as a historian. I'm very proud of, to be associated with that. Okay, third thing I want to say, uh, just, I just couldn't help but li listening to Professor Kotkin to remember this. If you remember his charts between the totalitarian school and the revisionist school, uh, I was firmly in those early years when I first came to Hoover and then in my untenured years uh, here at Stanford University in the Department of Political Science in that totalitarian school. Um, and it got serious, as Steve pointed out. It got, it, you know, there were, there were academic debates, but it got serious. Politics bled into uh, these kinds of things. Uh, two gentlemen that I'm not going to mention, I, well, one of them used to work with you, Steve, for many years, uh, so that's a hint, um, wrote in public, one said, because of my, my views on this side, being on that side, that uh, I'm a poisonous example to my uh, generation, and anybody that wants a career in political science who studies that, that part of the world should avoid contact with me. I actually have that document, because I pay attention to facts and documents and archives. Another gentleman called me a CIA agent, that actually I'm just a, a fraud in academia, and my real job is to destroy the Soviet Union. And every now and then I would talk to Bob about these things, and he said, don't worry. We're right, and they're wrong. Um, <laughs> and it all worked out for him, and it all worked out for me in terms of uh, those kind of predictions. So before I get to Putin, I just wanted to say those, those three things. With respect to Putin, and I've, I was, as I listened to the conversation earlier, I was thinking about, well, what did we get right, and what did we get wrong about uh, the post-Soviet period? Because I, like Bob, was in the camp back then that thought, the regime was evil. It wasn't the people that were evil. And if the regime uh, collapsed, Russians and the rest of the empire would be liberated. And I remember very vividly those early 90s. Those were tough economic times, tough political times. But we all you know, kind of thought that this was going to work out because the Soviet Union and its institutions had collapsed. At least that's what I wrote. And I was wrong because not all of the institutions of the Soviet Union collapsed. Some of the most important ones, 
the KGB. It has a different name, but it's still around. Didn't collapse. And that's what we got wrong, uh, at least me. Uh, that is, had we taken that regime focus that, that Bob had, had uh, written about in the Soviet era, and then look, well, what's, what's discon uh, you know, what has been interrupted and what hasn't, a lot of things were interrupted, right? A lot of things have changed, but a few survived. And the most important one that survived was the KGB. The leader of the country today is from that institution. Many of the richest people in Russia today are also from that institution. And that's the part that, you know, uh, his analytic framework was right. What we got wrong was that it all did not collapse in 1991. And as I have subsequently written after I left the government, we didn't win the Cold War because of that. Because it, that, those institutions, they went underground. Those people were upset for a while. I remember very vividly, I met Putin in the 90s. Uh, that group of people were really upset about the end of the Cold War. One, because they didn't like to see the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he said many times. But two, to be honest, they didn't get the benefits during the 1990s, right? In other words, the privatization that took place other people got property rights. The KGB did not. And they've righted that wrong, in their view, uh, over the last several years. And that institutional continuity, I think, is there. And tragically, uh, it's stronger today than it was 15 years ago, or, or most certainly 20 years ago. So you don't see history repeating itself. You see Putin as in the line of Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev, just a natural continuation. Well, he's at the line of the KGB. Now, it's in, so it's interesting. Just, in fact, this morning, uh, Putin just, just said something. If you're interested in these debates about Russia, follow me on Twitter. Uh, because I, I, I can... I, he's I had this, prolific, especially in the wee hours of the morning. Well, and, and in Russia. And we just had this debate on Twitter, actually, this morning about whether Putin's a communist or not. Uh, most certainly, he's a member of the KGB. He's never denounced them. He's never, unlike other countries that have gone through transitions, he's never said that the things that, that Professor Kotkin writes about was evil and wrong, and there, there's none of that Putin has ever said himself, right? Uh, remember, the institution that he proudly is a part of are the ones that carried out the Great Terror. There's continuity there on that side. On the ideological piece, uh, I think Putin's changed over time. So initially, whether for instrumental reasons or genuine uh, you know, changes in his thinking. I don't want to pretend to know him that well. Uh, but there was a period in the early 90s where he worked, it's important to remember, he worked for one of the biggest uh, liberal, not in American terms, but, but you know, European terms, uh, mayors in St. Petersburg, anti-communist. Anatoly Sobchak was his name. I, I knew him well. Uh, Putin was his deputy for five years. Then he worked for four years for Boris Yeltsin, a guy he now denounces, but he, he worked for him for four years. Nobody forced him to do that. Uh, nobody forced him to become prime minister for Yeltsin. And Yeltsin, let's remember, picked Putin to become president. Afterwards, it was ratified by the people, but that was Yeltsin that did that. And in the early years of, of the first term of Putinism, when he was president initially, uh, he hired a bunch of people that, that would feel very comfortable here at the Hoover Institution. They, they put in place something called a flat tax. Is that, you know, you remember that? Yeah. Well, we've never done it, but they did it. 13%, uh, by the way, on, in, uh, on individual incomes. 
Uh, that's not exactly a communist idea, right? Uh, German Greff is the guy that did it, and his, his finance advisor at the uh, minister at the time, uh, Kudrin, also would be considered you know, a conservative in American political terms. But over time, I do think he's become more conservative in, in a very Russian way. And I need to explain these terms because they have a different meaning in Russia than they do here. Number one, he's become more suspicious of markets. Uh, he's, he's decided that sometimes they, uh, individuals might be pursuing ulterior political motives, as he said one time about a very famous company in Russia, Yandex. It's one of their most su successful internet companies. And uh, one day he said, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so don't quote me on this, please, but, but basically too many Westerners own shares in that company, and therefore that, sh that company may not be acting in the national interest. And I think they lost a billion dollars on the stock market that day, by the way. Um, secondly, he's become more um, uh, suspicious of the outside world, and then play, therefore plays to what's considered you know, the more, uh, you know, I don't even know the right words. I, wanted, I was going to say hard line. That's not the right word. More conservative domestic base, which is, uh, you know, less educated, uh, less uh, rich, less urban. That's his electoral base, and that's, that's a base he shares with the communists. And then, therefore, just yesterday or today, and then there was a debate on Twitter in Russia, there was this debate about is he now moving towards the Communist Party as they get ready for the next election. So not to appropriate cycle. a current political phrase, but he wants to make Russia great again. Well, he definitely wants to make Russia great again. Uh, but in my view, he just has the wrong strategy. But the genius of Robert Conquest, of course, was that he recognized not just the evilness of the regime, but the intent of the man leading it. How did we get Putin so wrong? And is there anyone writing today, either in the United States or in the West more generally, or in Russia, um, like a conquest, exposing really the criminality, the anti-Western intent of this regime today in Moscow? You know, I don't think we got Putin wrong. I mean, maybe you all did in Washington or, you know, in some foreign policy debate. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at the folks that have written about him, either in Moscow or in this country, and say, well, we fundamentally misunderstood him. There were some. Uh, uh, but I would say we were better as a community, as an academic community on him. I wrote my first piece about Putin's authoritarian ways in the spring of 2000, again, for another publication, the Washington Post, I apologize. Uh, but that was even before he was president. And I think, I think maybe, maybe because we learned from uh, our mistakes as a discipline before. I, I haven't thought about it, but uh, I think about my academic community um, that are writing about kind of contemporary stuff. I think we got them right. Where the, where the problem is, is, is it comes in policy. Right? The policy is, um, and I would say this was true with the Clinton folks, Bush, and the Obama administration. Um, there was, at each different change, the Clinton folks just saw a, a bit of Putin, right? He came in right at the end. Uh, President Bush came in with some things he wanted to do uh, in terms of U.S.-Russian relations. Uh, he wanted to get rid of the ABM treaty, for instance, um, and he wanted to manage that. I, I, I briefed the president in May of 2009, like two weeks before he met with Putin. 
Uh, and it was very clear to me in that session, uh, Condi was there, so you can, ask, you can verify it with uh, Condi tonight uh, if you want, but it's very clear from that discussion that he wanted to get these things done and contain the fallout from our European allies, and so he wanted to reach out to Putin, and he did. That's when he said very famously, you know, I looked into his soul and saw a man I could do business with. Then there was a very important, as we would call it euphemistically in, in political science, exogenous shock. That was September 11th. And in, after September 11th happened, there was a moment, and it's a, it was a real moment, I, I don't want to be clear about this, where Putin saw us attacked. His country had been attacked, in his view, by by Chechen terrorists, although there's some dispute as to whether it was the regime or Chechen terrorists. Uh, he reached out to President Bush then, and he said, we have a common enemy, uh, and we need to fight that, that enemy together. And for a time, uh, President Bush uh, thought that that was more important than worrying about the erosion of democracy that was going on simultaneously in the first years of the Putin era. If if the goal of Putin is to reconstitute the old Soviet Union, which it looks like it may be, it may not be a grand strategic design, but uh, when he sees an opportunity, he goes for it. Uh, does that mean, what are the lessons then for this White House, but more importantly for the White House that secedes it in dealing with Russia today under Putin? Do we adopt the same kind of policies that Robert Conquest advocated for and if not, why not? If so, why? Generally, my answer is yes. So generally, uh, tragically, I don't say this with any kind of celebration of it, but I think an, a, a, a version of containment of this regime is necessary. I do. Uh, I've written that. I've said that. I, I, I said that while I was still in the government, by the way, uh, uh, because of... of you know, that the, the things, you know, we could go into it in more detail, but, but Putin fundamentally did not want to be part of the system. He fundamentally uh, believed that we were uh, undermining his regime and undermining regimes on his borders. I sat there with President Obama many times as he exchanged these, uh, you know, it's, it was just an analytic disagreement uh, where Putin saw the United States as fomenting revolution around the world, in Egypt, in Ukraine, in Russia. And when President Obama would explain to him, uh, we're not doing that. Those are Egyptians and Ukrainians and Russians that have almost nothing to do with us. Putin wouldn't believe him. And then, therefore, when the government in Ukraine fell in uh, February 2014, uh, we were shocked by it. I was still in the government. We did not predict it. We did not arm those guys. We did not foment it. To be honest, we were trying to cut a deal between Yanukovych and the opposition at the time. Um, but when it fell, that's when Putin decided, aha, uh -huh, Obama's no different from any other president before. Uh, the United States uses the 82nd Airborne and the CIA to overthrow regimes we don't like, and now we have to strike back. And that's why he went into Crimea. But was that the key mistake of Obama, is not showing strength, not arming the rebels, and therefore presenting really a weak front to Putin, which Putin has taken advantage of? In other words, doing exactly the opposite of what Robert Conquest would have uh, argued for. You mean the rebels in Syria, right? Ukraine. Not, well, that, that all came afterwards, right? So uh, Ukraine and Syria. Well. 
I'd say two things. One is um, we were slow to, in my view, I mean, you know, I was part of this. We, we had a policy of reset, uh, you know, engaging with the Russians to, to advance our interests uh, and also doing dual track engagement. Uh, it's all right out of Schultz's memoirs, by the way. Re-engaging the Soviets, chapter 25, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, we didn't do it exactly right, but that was our strategy. But then when Putin came back, he was very different than Medvedev. So this is another interesting thing that we were teasing on in the morning session, right? Whether this is all the system or whether these people are different. My own view, and I miss, uh, I, I underestimated how dramatic that change would be at the time, in real time. But my own view now, having watched Medvedev and Putin up close, is they're very different people. Uh, Medvedev, in his own way, wanted to bring Russia into the community of states. He wanted to join the WTO, and he wanted to develop uh, Silicon Valley. He called it Skolkovo. Uh, he wanted, in a very slow way, to open up the political system. He allowed Doge TV to happen. He didn't close down Doge TV, right? He actually, that's an independent uh, television station that's now barely alive in Russia today. He actually appeared on their show, right? He, very slowly, and he wanted to get one more election under his belt to do these things later, but he saw himself in this Gorbachev uh, um, spirit. Not, he's nowhere near, had, nowhere near had the courage nor power of Mikhail Sergeyevich, but he saw himself that way. Putin didn't. Putin saw, saw that Medvedev was making mistakes. By the way, the same mistakes that he thinks that Gorbachev made. Uh, and therefore, especially after Libya, that's when Putin decided, you know, this guy's been hoodwinked by these Americans, just like Putin thinks Gorbachev was hood hoodwinked by one of our guests here. Uh, and we're not going to repeat that mistake. We're not going to go down that road. Uh, so that's the first thing. He came in with this much more suspicious view. And then the second really important thing that happened was in the fall of 2011, in response to falsified elections in Russia, mm. tens of thousands, and on a couple of occasions, hundreds of thousands of Russians came out on the streets to protest against Putin's regime. And the last time that had happened was in the spring of 1991. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of people came out, and you know what happened in 1991? That's the year the Soviet Union collapsed. And Putin said, we're not making this mistake again. That's when he cracked down on them. That's when he blamed them as being agents of the United States, agents of me personally, by the way. I was the ambassador at the time. I was literally made the poster child, because <laughs> they made posters, uh, of, you know, McFall has been sent here from the Hoover Institution, by the way. Uh, used to be called War, Revolution, and Peace, uh, to foment revolution here. And Putin said, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to crack down on that. We, we responded too slowly to that. We eventually responded. People forget. Obama didn't go to a summit that was planned. He, we put sanctions in place. But we responded too slow. We should have responded for faster. Having said that, uh, I think there is continuity in US policy towards this region. And it's tragic history and tragic continuity. Every time a leader sitting in Moscow has decided to invade Eastern Europe or to pull off a coup d'etat, as they did in Poland in December 1981. Every time, 56, 68, 81, August 2008, when George W. Bush has been president, was president, there's been no military response. 
There's been no, okay, let's send in the 82nd Airborne to repel that back. Do you know how many people were put on the sanctions list after Russia invaded Georgia? You and I have talked about this before, so you know the answer, right? Zero. Do you know how many weapons were sent to the Georgians then? Zero. And that, that is a tragic feature of, of uh, dealing with Moscow. That so, at the end of the day, the idea that we're going to have a, a coercive strategy, those are very limited. Having said that, you know, I've actually looked back at what the Reagan administration did in response to Poland in 1981, and I give a lot of credit to the European alliance. I, I think Angela Merkel, first and foremost, gets, should get a credit. But if you look at the response, I think it's been rather effective. And this gets to me to my recommendations for 2017. What have they done? They've sanctioned Russians for bad behavior. The sanction list on Russia today is bigger than at any time in U.S.-Russian relations going all the way back to John Quincy Adams. You've never had as many people on a sanctions lift. You've never had as many companies on. That's a good policy in my view. Second, they've shored up NATO. They have reduced Putin's uh, ambiguity about what will happen should he attack a NATO member. It's not to zero. I think we could do more, and I'm going to get to what we should do more, but it's a lot lower today than it was back in 2014. And third, they've supported Ukraine. They've supported Ukraine, they being, you know, the, the Obama administration, but the European, the NATO alliance, and the EU all together. In my view, one can do more on all of those, right? So my recommendation would be to do, keep all that pressure in place, uh, especially on NATO. I think more could be done there. I support arming Ukraine. Uh, that's why I was confused, uh, arming the government, not the rebels. Uh, uh, I support that. The president doesn't. We, we've had that disagreement. I support uh, greater support for our NATO allies, um, uh, most especially the frontline states. So I would say stay the course, but do more on those fronts. And two more things. One, support engagement with Russian society. That was not an option as available, just seeing the, the photos of Solzhenitsyn and Bukowski, uh, we should do whatever we can to engage those kind of people, uh, and not only those people, all kinds of societal people that want to remain engaged with the, the outside world. That was a lot harder to do uh, in the time that Bob was writing about. And, and the last thing I would say, when it's in our interest to engage on something that is, that is concrete in our interest, uh, whether it's getting the Minsk Accords done or fighting ISIS, we should do that with the Russians, but we shouldn't do it linked to some other thing. I, I'm also a big opponent of linkage. And two, we shouldn't do it with, uh, if it means checking our values at the door to have those negotiations. We can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and I, that's what I would recommend for the next president. Okay. <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.